Tonight we're going to be looking at the, the next portion of the story of David and Goliath. Why would someone risk their life for another person? For anybody. Some would do it out of love for that person. Others might do it because they want to be seen as a hero. Still others might do it just out of a sense of duty. They feel like it is their responsibility. But you know, for anyone to put themselves in danger, especially in a life or death situation, they must have a pretty good reason for it. And tonight, we're going to look in 1 Samuel 17. And I've got the wrong slide up. Let me fix it. There we go. That'll make it much easier for you to fill in the blanks on your outline tonight. I promise. The title of the lesson is A Cause Worth Fighting For. And as we look in these verses from 1 Samuel 17, we find that David, when he arrived on the scene, he found an army that was absolutely paralyzed by fear and an enemy that was emboldened. He was in the middle of what was really an upside-down situation. Instead of God's people being victorious, they were living in defeat. Now what could he, as a very young man with very little military training, do in this situation? Something that could have turned deadly in just an instant. What could he do against a frightfully deadly giant as we saw last week? He could trust God and face the enemy in faith instead of fear. Now when Satan, our enemy, and those who serve him try to frighten us into submissive silence, we're going to be tempted to hide and avoid the conflict just like Saul and his army were. Because to stand up against the enemy makes yourself a target. Not only for the enemy, but for the cowards on our own side. Now, why would we place ourselves in such a dangerous position as that? And the only good answer is because God's reputation is worth fighting for. David understood that. That the glory of God is what was at stake. And that was the best reason to get in the fight. And when we face the enemy with faith-filled courage... God promises to give us the victory. And the rewards will be blessings for us and the glory of God. Look with me at verse 11 in our text. It's a lengthy passage, so we'll not begin by reading the whole thing. We'll read as we go. So verse 11, we begin. When Saul and Israel heard those words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So number one, Notice with me the fearfulness of Saul and the soldiers. Now we looked last week at the big problem that they were facing. His name was Goliath. He was a threat in every way. He was dangerous. He was lethal. There's no doubt about that. And none of us should blame Saul or his army 
for being tempted to be afraid. Because that was only natural in this situation. Because when you look at this situation from the human vantage point, there was a lot of very real danger. And so the temptation to be afraid was understandable. The Philistines were frightening, and any reasonable person could have looked at Goliath, his size, his armament, his skill, and have determined that he was a huge threat to their life in every way. Now understand, we've been given a God-given ability to perceive danger and avoid it to protect ourselves. That's not a bad thing. Proverbs 22.3 says that a prudent man will foresee the evil and turn the other way. So there's, there's wisdom in avoiding danger when possible. But the problem is not that they were tempted to fear. The problem was is they gave in to the temptation and allowed fear to determine their actions. Allowing fear to control your life is a sin. We are repeatedly commanded in the Bible, do not be afraid, fret not. And those instructions are more than just good advice. They are an an integral part of God's commandments, His laws for us. He does not want us living according to our fears. Joshua 1.9, Have not I commanded thee, be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. 2 Timothy 1.7, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Saul and his soldiers were filled with fear. And they allowed that fear to control them and determine their course of action. And that was wrong. But Saul and the soldiers were paralyzed by a particularly dangerous form of fear, and that was the fear of man. What were, who were they afraid of? Goliath and the Philistines, a group of people. You know, it's one thing to have a fear of, say, a venomous snake. Okay, that's, that's a healthy thing. If you see a copperhead, it's probably not a good idea to go, you know, just pick it up and start playing with it. Why? Because it can hurt you. That's one kind of fear. There's another kind, uh, other kinds of fear that we face. For example, you might have a fear of what a disease could do to your body. But the fear of man is an entirely different and more dangerous kind of fear because it's based on the irrational and the untruthful assumption that people can do you the greatest harm and therefore... Protecting yourself and avoiding the dangers that people present is the best form of protection. Again, that's not true. People are not the greatest danger to us, and avoiding the dangers they present is not the best form of protection. That kind of fear, the fear of man, traps you into a vicious cycle, the same vicious cycle that the Israelites were in. What were they doing? Two things are revealed to us in this text. Number one, they were hiding. Every time Goliath would come out and scream at them his challenge and his taunts, what would they do? They would literally run and hide. Classic avoidance. But there was another thing going on. 
It's not quite as explicit, but it's there in the text. They were scheming. Saul, who should have gone, or at least been willing to go, and fight Goliath himself, instead offered a huge reward for anyone who would go and fight Goliath. We read about it a little later. We'll cover that in a few minutes. But he offered money. He offered his daughter's hand in marriage. He offered freedom for the family to anybody who would go. That was scheming. And they were trapped in this vicious cycle and it had gotten them nowhere because for 40 days they had sat there on that mountainside doing nothing but being afraid. And when you allow yourself to be driven by the fear of men, you will be found, find yourself in that same vicious cycle of hiding and scheming to protect yourself from what you imagine people might do. Instead of fearing God, we often fear man. And instead of trusting God, we trust ourselves for safety. Proverbs twenty nine twenty five says, The fear of man bringeth a snare, but whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. When we are feeling fear, the thing that we desire is to replace that with the feeling of safety. Well, if you're fearing man, there will be no safety. Only by trusting God will you find that. Anyone who fears man more than they fear God needs to correct his thinking. Because man is not the greatest threat to us. Man cannot do the greatest harm to us. The greatest harm happens to us if we live a life without God or outside of God's will. That is where the greatest harm lies. We are to fear God in the proper way and not man. In Matthew 10.28, Jesus said, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And in Psalm 37, David, some years after this, would write, Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be envious against the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass." and wither as the green herb. I wonder if when David wrote that, he thought about Goliath. I wonder if in his mind's eye, he saw Goliath falling on the ground after that rock sunk into his forehand. And so when he said, cut down like the grass, he was thinking, yeah, just like Goliath. Saul and his soldiers were scared. For 40 days they cowered and they hid while Goliath taunted and jeered. And someone needed to do, to do something. But neither the king nor any of his men had the courage to step up. Now let's look at verses 12 on down through verse 22. Now David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse. And he had eight sons. And the man went among men for an old man in the days of Saul. And the three eldest sons of Jesse went and followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons that went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, next unto him Abinadab, and third Shammah. And David was the youngest, and the three eldest followed Saul. But David went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And the Philistine drew near morning and evening and presented himself forty days." 
And Jesse said unto David his son, Take now for thy brethren an ephah of this parched corn and these ten loaves, and run to the camp to thy brethren, and carry these ten cheeses unto the captain of their thousand, and look how thy brethren fare, and take their pledge. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose up early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper, and took and went as Jesse had commanded him, and he came to the trench as the host was going forth to the fight and shouted for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had put the battle in array against army against army. And David left his carriage in the hand of the keeper of the carriage and ran into the army and came and saluted his brethren. Let's notice from these verses the faithfulness of David. A great contrast here that we will see between David and King Saul and David's brothers and all the other men. Now just to review, at the end of 1 Samuel 16, we read of David serving in King Saul's court. Remember, he had been brought in as a royal musician to play whenever Saul's fits of rage would come upon him, that evil spirit from the Lord. But then he was quickly promoted to the position of armor-bearer to King Saul. Now after some time, we don't know exactly how long, David was sent home from there. He had fulfilled his duty. He was allowed to go back home. And he went back to his old job of keeping the sheep. Remember that job that he was doing faithfully when Samuel came and anointed him to be the next king? Now don't overlook this. This is a very important part of the story. We see David in 1 Samuel 17 here, and he's back in his old place doing his old job just as before. He's gone from royal musician and armor bearer back to a shepherd. Now most people would view that as a demotion. But apparently David didn't think so. Being a shepherd was not beneath David because he was where God wanted him to be doing what God wanted him to do. That was the place God wanted David. And so that's where David was. And David, because he was faithful to do that simple task, was in a place where God could use him and present him with an opportunity to accomplish one of the greatest feats of, in all of Scripture and really of all time. That even people who don't believe the Bible, who don't believe in God, still talk about David and Goliath as the greatest underdog story ever. All because David was faithful to the little job. Had David not been willing to tend the flock, and had he not been willing to obey his father's instruction to take a care package to his brothers, he may never have gotten the chance to face Goliath. You know, we're tempted to think many times that little matters don't matter. Not a big deal. If I let this slide, if I don't do a great job on this, if this just kind of goes by the wayside, that's not that important. What we want is that opportunity, that chance to do something big, something important, and we're all just certain that if we had that opportunity, boy, we could really show everybody how good we are and what we can do. God says the exact opposite, though. God says if you are not faithful in the little things, you will not be faithful in the big things. 
The world says, just give me a big chance and I'll do something big. God says, I'll give you a little chance. And if you do the little, then maybe you'll get a chance to do something big. Luke 16.10, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in that which is least is unjust also in much. And so consequently, many people waste their lives chasing bigger and better opportunities. The world is filled with people who are trying to uh, climb the corporate ladders or become the next big star. They're just trying to promote themselves, not understanding that promotion comes from the Lord. And it's our responsibility just to live for Him and do what He's called us to do, no matter how small the task may be. Jeremiah 45 and verse A, or verse 45, verse 5, A, the first part of that verse. The Lord was speaking to Jeremiah's assistant named Baruch. And he said, Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. Well, a lot of people need to hear that message because they're living for great things for themselves. It's all about them, it's all about them getting the next promotion, them being seen as the big star, God says don't seek after that. Because when God looks to promote someone, He's not interested in their educational successes or their corporate achievements or how famous they are and how many followers they have on social media. There's one quality above all others that God is looking for in His servants, and that is faithfulness. Faithfulness. And no matter who you are, you can be faithful by the grace of God. It doesn't require a special degree. You don't have to have any money in the bank. You can be faithful by the grace of God. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 2. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Faithful. Now David had many positive things to list on his resume. You go back to chapter 16 and they talked about just all of his wonderful attributes, his physical presence, his skills, his abilities. His, he was a great musician. He was even a good-looking guy, you know. But none of that would have mattered if he hadn't been faithful in the little things. So now let's look at verses 23 through 27. And as he talked with them, behold, there came up the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistines, and spake according to the same words. And David heard them, and all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were sore afraid. The men of Israel said, Have you seen this man that has come up? Surely to defy Israel is he come up, and it shall be that the man who killeth him, the king will enrich him with great riches, and will give him his daughter, and make his father's house free in Israel. David spake to the men that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine, and taketh away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him after this manner, saying, So shall it be done to the man that killeth him. So number three, notice with me the fearlessness of David. When David gets there, the armies were just getting ready to have an, an epic clash of a battle when all of a sudden Goliath stepped forward one more time and issued his challenge. And when he did, the Bible says that all of the soldiers 
in Israel that were just getting ready to fight turned and ran and hid. David saw the terror that the soldiers experienced when Goliath gave them his daily dose of dread. He saw the cowardice in the camp and he just couldn't keep quiet. And so he asked a simple question. Notice again in verse 26. What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine and taketh away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? While everybody else is running and hiding, David's like, wait a second, what's going on here? And even in his question, we see his courage. This was a very courageous question to ask. Notice, he's not thinking about hiding. He's thinking about fighting. What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine? He didn't say, hey, save me some space in that cave over there. He's thinking about killing the enemy, not being killed by the enemy. The man that killeth this Philistine. He was not thinking about Goliath's advantages. He was thinking about Goliath's disadvantages. Notice how he described him, an uncircumcised Philistine. Everybody else said, he's huge, he's big, he's got all of this armor, he's got all of these weapons. But you know what David saw? He saw a man who was not one of God's people. And David knew that was Goliath's weakness. He wasn't focusing on his advantages, but on his disadvantages. He wasn't thinking about preserving his own life either. He was thinking about preserving the reputation of God. Because notice how he said, who taketh away the reproach from Israel because this Philistine defies the armies of the living God. David had a mindset of faith-filled courage and not fear. Proverbs 28.1 says, The wicked flee when no man pursueth but the righteous are bold as a lion. You know what that tells me? Saul and his army were acting like wicked men. Goliath wasn't even chasing them, you understand. He simply stood up and issued a challenge and they fled. The wicked flee when no man pursueth. But David, on the other hand, was bold as a lion. He asked this courageous question and everybody knew he wasn't asking just because he was curious because he, but because he meant to do something. And so the soldiers responded by telling David all that King Saul had offered for, those, for the one who would kill Goliath. The king would give him lots of money, let him marry the princess and make his family free forever. That was basically the ending of every fairy tale ever. And they shall live happily ever after. But the material rewards and the marital rewards were not what David was most interested in. He was most concerned about the damage being done to God's reputation. He is a reproach. He is defying the armies of the living God. And it was because of Israel's fearful inaction that God's reputation was being hurt. 
And the same thing still happens all too often. Christians are afraid to speak up, to speak out, because they fear man. They're afraid they might be mocked or marginalized or rejected. And let me tell you, no amount of material reward could ever overcome that fear. Only when God's reputation means more to you than anything else will you have the faith-filled courage to stand up against the enemy. Now let's look at the last verses for tonight. Verses 28 and 29. David asks this question. They answer, here's what will be done. And his brother speaks up. Eliab is eldest brother heard when he spake unto the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why camest thou down hither? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart, for thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. David said, What have I now done? Is there not a cause? So lastly, we'll notice the faithlessness of Eliab, the faithlessness of Eliab. Honestly, when you read through this, at least to me, it just seems like verse 28 comes out of nowhere. You're going along and David's asking this question and all of a sudden his brother stands up and basically says, who do you think you are? Instead of standing up for his little brother, Eliab tries to put him down and he insults him. Why would he do that? It says he got angry. His anger was kindled against David. I don't know. Maybe he was bitter because he had been overlooked by Samuel to be anointed for the next king. Or maybe he didn't like being shown up by his little brother in front of all of his army buddies there. But whatever the reason, Eliab's response was one of faithlessness. He betrayed his brother and he was a traitor to God. I'm not going to sugarcoat what he was doing here. He, Eliab, was trying to do the same thing that Goliath was doing. And that is discourage people from fighting. And in doing that, Eliab, maybe unwittingly, but he was fighting for the enemy. Eliab said three degrading things to David. First he asked, why camest thou down hither? In other words, what are you even doing here? You shouldn't even be here, is what he's implying. Then he asked, with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? It doesn't exactly sound like a compliment. It doesn't sound like he is viewing David as a very important part of their uh, their family and, and the, the business back home and everything. It just, what are you... Who, who did you leave those couple sheep with that you're supposed to be looking after? He would have preferred that David stay out of sight and insignificant. He couldn't stand the thought that David might do something important and eclipse him in fame. One author put it this way, Therefore, such is the nature of jealousy, he would rather that Goliath triumph over Israel than that David should be the man that should triumph over him. And then finally, Eliab said this, number three, I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart, for thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. Why was David there? Because his dad told him to go. 
Dad said, your brothers have been there almost six weeks. They're probably getting hungry. Take them some food. Take a gift to their captain. Find out how they're doing. Make sure they're okay. And so David went. And Eliab accuses him, questioning his motives and essentially calling him an arrogant busybody. You know, few things are more hurtful than when people misjudge your motives so badly. One commentary summed up Eliab's response this way. Eliab sought for the splinter in his brother's eye and was not aware of the beam in his own. The very things which he charged his brother with, presumption and wickedness of heart, were the most apparent in his scornful reproof. But David's response was heroic. It was a simple question, but what he said has resounded down through the halls of time and it still rings loudly and clearly for those who stand on the edge of a battle. What have I now done? Is there not a cause? In other words, don't I have a good reason to be here to be asking these questions and to be willing to go and fight the enemy. The answer is not given in this passage to David's question, but it's implied, yes, yes, I have a good reason to be here. And yes, we have a good reason to fight. We have the best reason to fight. We are God's army and His reputation is at stake. And He will give us the victory. That's the best reason to fight. We get to fight not to win the victory, but we get to fight because Jesus has already won the victory. As Christians, we're commanded to engage this world with the Gospel. We've been commanded to do combat with the enemy and those who oppose us. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. Whereunto thou art also called. 1 Timothy 6.12 says. So why would we mock or belittle or insult another Christian who puts themselves forward and says, I will stand up and fight. I will do something. But I'm not going to sit idly by. I'm not going to hide in fear. I'm not going to let the enemy silence me into submission. I'm going to do something. Why would we mock them? Is it because we're bitter about our being overlooked? Is it because we feel threatened by their potential success? Is it because there is pride and naughtiness in our own heart? You betray God and your brothers and sisters in Christ when you discourage others from fighting the good fight. We should be fighting ourselves. That is not among ourselves, but we each should be fighting and we should be encouraging others to fight because we have a cause worth fighting for. David was not interested in boosting his image. He didn't have a brand to build. He was simply grieved by the cowardice that he saw and the harm that it was doing to God's reputation. He was willing to fight, but not for his glory for God's. So let me say to you tonight, don't hide from the enemy and don't run from the battle. 
Because the glory of God is worth fighting for. Our Heavenly Father, I thank You for the stories that we read in the Bible. True events. That though they happened many, many years ago, they still teach us today how we ought to live for You. And Lord, I pray that You would encourage us when we are tempted to hide in fear, and when we are tempted to be silent in the face of a jeering and a taunting enemy. May we stand boldly and courageously in Your strength. And Lord, that the victories You win through us would get You glory as You deserve. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.